We're taking our Bibles again to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 today. If you're new to Meadowbrook, we're working through a series throughout this epistle. And if you haven't been looking at 1 Peter in a while, it's towards the very end of the Bible. You'll find that small little epistle, 1 Peter. Go to chapter 4 there. We want to begin in verse 1 today. So, O Lord, open our eyes that we may see. And open our ears that we may hear, for there is truth that will be proclaimed and truth that will be read. And cultivate in our heart and in our mind the means by which we can take this truth and submit our lives to it, to the glory and honor of Jesus and for the good of everyone who will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, we are surprised when you do not join, or they are surprised when they, you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What an interesting passage for us to tackle today. Let's take it as we would if we were personally studying this on our own in bite-sized chunks thinking through the words and the phrases and the sentences and concentrating and asking the Spirit to give us insight. Let's start with the very first verse, the beginning of that. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now I'm very appreciative of somebody who came up with the idea we ought to take the Bible and divide it into chapters and verses so that we will all understand what we're studying together. I'm grateful for that, but there's sometimes that I'm not so grateful they put them where they did. Uh, you wouldn't really want to start another chapter beginning with the word since therefore, because it's obviously trying to help us to tie the words together, what was previously read. And as with every letter that's written, the letter is meant to be opened and begin reading from the very start of it and read it all the way through. But here we are dividing it up and just uh, working through it. And such is the eternal word of God. It has such richness for us that we need to do that. But you have to think back, what is this sense therefore he is bringing us toward? And of course, it is this salvation that is ours in Christ that is demonstrated by baptism, the public expression of this inward transformation that Christ has brought to us. And he's helping us to be reminded of that, about that, that time in our life that we were born again in Jesus Christ. So 
since therefore Christ also suffered in the flesh, you and I ought to have the same way of thinking. He wants to tie that. Since you've been saved, since you have been born again, you need to be thinking about this in the way that Christ is thinking about it. What is it that he's thinking about? He's thinking about suffering in the flesh. Now, throughout the epistles, whether it's Peter or Paul or somebody else who's writing, suffering oftentimes is another word to describe death. And that is the case in this passage. So when he's saying suffering, he is saying this is the equivalent of Christ's death for Christ suffered unto death. And it's the death of Christ, not just the mere fleshly suffering of Christ that brought our salvation. It's the, the satisfaction, the propitiation, as would later be described, this satisfaction of the wrath of God that came at the death of Christ as he bears all the sins of mankind. So our Savior's death was preordained. It was an ordained plan from eternity past, before the foundation of the world was put into order. God's, God's plan was that his only begotten son would come and he would die a suffering death that would lead to and be the satisfaction of God's holy justice against the sin of mankind. So you've seen throughout the epistle, Peter has had this reoccurring concentrated subject. If you trail back to the first chapter in the 18th verse, 18, 19, and 20, you'll see that it is there as well, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. And then he said over in chapter 2, verse 24, as he continues with this theme, Jesus bore our sins in the body on the tree. By the way, that on the tree is a descriptor of the cross. It's the Deuteronomy passage that says, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Christ, of course, became the curse of mankind. The curse of sin was there on that cross. So Jesus bore our sins on, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And healed there is not this temporary way of being healed of our sicknesses and our disease. We need way more than that. I need my soul healed. I need to be healed from the consequences of my sin and Oh, de disease and death is part of that, but it's a small part of that. I needed to have every aspect, body, soul, and spirit to be healed. And it's by the wounds and the death of Christ Jesus that he accomplishes that. And then, of course, last week we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered for once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Isn't that such a rich, succinct statement about the gospel of Christ, that verse 18? This is what Christ was doing. Why did he die on the cross? That he might bring us to God. Because there was no way for us to be brought to God in any other way other than Jesus. We couldn't do it on our own. Couldn't do it by our works. Couldn't do it by your mama's faith. It's by Christ alone. So all these passages and others from 1 Peter have this common element. And the commonality is this very sentence. The suffering of Christ provides our joyful victory over death, sin, and judgment. You can be free from sin, death, and judgment because Christ 
died on the cross and was resurrected. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's coming again. You can celebrate in all that Christ has accomplished and you can walk in that grand victory. And Peter is reminding those who are reading his letter that this is what the victory of Christ is producing for you. And that that is coming from the suffering of Christ. All this is possible by the suffering of Christ. It's throughout the text of the scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. It proclaims that Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That, that passage intrigued me as I was growing up. This whole idea of the joy that was set before him to endure the cross, that, that intrigued me, the word joy. It's not that he was joyful to be executed by the Romans. He was not giddy to face the enduring suffering that would be brought to him, leading to the cross and on the cross itself. Instead, with sweat like great drops of blood, he cried out to his father in prayer to let this cup pass from him if possible. Jesus knew that he was going to face immense suffering. And I'm not just talking about the agony and the brutality of the scourgings and the beatings that he would endure or the humiliation of the faulty inquisition and the evil verdict that would be passed on to him or the public rebuke and shame of hanging naked on a cross there at Calvary. I'm talking about Jesus suffering immensely unto death, a suffering that is only unto the Son of God more than physical and emotional trauma. Beyond that kind of suffering, Jesus was suffering as the Son of God. Think of this for a moment. As righteousness is crushed with the unrighteous sin of every human being of all time. That's suffering. Or the one who is in perfect union with the Heavenly Father Suffering when he became sin and suddenly felt for the first time ever aloneness and forsakenness bearing the weight of God's holy wrath. And I'm talking about a suffering as the life now experiencing the horror of death or love personified the object, the very object of hatred. That's suffering. Yet the Hebrew writer says, with joy, Jesus faced the cross. With joy and all of its suffering and shame, he faced the cross. And he did so for the victory that would be on the other side. You see, there's not going to be victory unless there is suffering by Christ. And it's because of that victory that Jesus, with joy, endured the cross, moved toward the cross. So you, you might be saying, Randy, okay, this is common stuff. This is what we understand very early in our days of coming into faith in Christ and the study of his word. But it is so essential that you and I recognize it's only through the suffering of Christ that we receive the joy and the victory of new life. You can't have resurrected life without Christ dying on that cross first. Suffering and then victory. And of course, Jesus' suffering brought about our victory over sin and death. Now, Peter is linking that kind of truth together to us. And he's doing it in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourself with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He wants you to make this connection that if you have joined with the suffering of Christ, then you in your suffering have ceased from sin. Now, in case you're thinking, uh, Randy, I have not ceased from sin yet. Uh, yesterday, I did this, this, and this, and this morning, I did that, and this, and that. Some of you sinned immensely on your way to church. Now, this verse obviously can be very puzzling, and there's a whole lot of discussion about it. So, I think rather than just coming to a summary conclusion on this, we ought to just recognize, okay, what do we know? As Christians, what does the Bible tell us that is absolutely certain that can help us to build a better framing to understand this verse? Well, we know that there's not a single person in this room who has ceased from sin. Not a single one of us. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says that very thing, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we know without a fact, everybody in here is a sinner. Look at the people around you, a bunch of sinners. I don't mind telling you, there were a few of you that I was thinking about, Lord, really, that person? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're all sinners. Secondly, we know that we will cease to sin, catch this, we'll cease to sin when our bodies cease to live. That's when sin will be over. When you and I suck in our last breath and our heart stops beating, sin will be no more. You say, oh, that sounds kind of morbid. Oh, that sounds wonderful to me. My whole life has been lived with regret. My whole life marked and scarred with sin. And I cannot wait to the day when that is dead and over. When will that day be, Randy? It'll be when I'm dead. Sin will cease. And we will live eternally without sin in heaven. How about this? There is coming a day that God will give us a resurrected, glorified body meaning that our body will be just like Jesus, which will match the spirit that he has already given to us. That day's coming. And then we also know that God provides all this through Jesus, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his return. This is what he's talking about. The suffering that Christ endured brought the victory. So you and I need to, be, need to be thinking differently about suffering even unto death because it will bring the ultimate victory for our lives. I have a growing longing for heaven. How about you? There is something in me that makes me think about it, makes me long for it, makes me hope for it all the more. I want to see Jesus. I want to stare at my Savior who lovingly took my sin upon himself and died my horrific death that should have been on me. I want to be near the one who has proven to be long-suffering. I'm talking about a suffering servant who is immensely patient and astonishingly merciful to me. 
I want to communicate my remorse to him. I want to express my gratitude and I want to worship alongside the saints, the myriad of myriad, tens of thousands upon tens of thousands that are singing unto him. And I want to be in the presence of what is divinely royal. I want to be in the presence of the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega. I want to be with the lion and the lamb. And I want to sing with the heavenly hosts and I want to experience the radiance of the saturating glory of God and I want to cheer on the victorious commander of the Lord's army. And though I might tremble when I think and contemplate about being in the presence of Christ, I have a growing enthusiasm because of the confidence that is in me that I will stand before the presence of God with a new and glorified body without the effect or touch of sin ever again. Oh, I've got a longing. I've got a longing. And it's that suffering of Christ. That when we think like he thinks that suffering yields victory, that our death yields the sinlessness that he has provided for us, when we think like he thinks with his mind, then we will live differently. Look what he says again in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same kind of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you have a mom, a dad, a cousin, a brother, a nephew, a sister, a friend, a fellow church member who is in Christ that's died? Oh, let me encourage you. That person has ceased from sin. They know victory like you don't know victory. They know glory like you don't know glory. And they know worship like you don't know worship. Because they can worship the Father without any sin. They can stand before Jesus without any regret. No shame. No remorse. Grateful. Filled with hope. Standing before them is their Savior. What a thought. What a thought. So arm yourself. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science or even a seminarian to recognize that arm yourself is a military term. And so what he is saying here is fortify yourself. Take on the munitions necessary for you to stand in this truth. Take this on. Take this up. Take this munition of truth, what you know about Christ, let it fortify you, let it be what helps you to stand your ground and even advance in the kingdom of God. So Jesus knew that his suffering would bring an end to our sin and knowing, knowing that it was for joy that he would go. And in the same way, we know now that victory has freed us from captivity to sin. We are no longer slaves of fear. No longer slaves of sin. No longer slaves to the fear of death. Because Christ has empowered us to no longer live for human passions. And instead, he has made it so that we might live in the will of God. So let me recap for a moment. Your sin and my sin will end with our death and your sinlessness will begin in heaven. 
Now, knowing where you've been in sin and knowing where you're going with sinlessness, now Peter is saying you better fortify your mind with what Christ knows and you ought to be living not for the passions of your flesh, which is a passion of sin. You ought to be living with the passions of victory, which is sinlessness. This is what he's calling us to, to think and to respond differently. So suffering and death, the very thing that we dread, actually provide for our greatest victory. The very thing that you and I have been dreading all of our life is actually going to provide our great victory. We'll live without sin. You see, God does not mean for death to be scary to us. As he says in 1 John chapter 4, perfect love casts out fear. It doesn't mean death to be scary. Since our new life in Christ, death is the most extraordinary thing that we could ever have in our lives. It could be the ending of our life that will actually be the greatest blessings. So knowing that, Peter goes on to show us how we ought to live, knowing where our great hope is and where our victory lies, which is in our death, because in our death, we will be absent in body, we'll be present with the Lord. So he says in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is the moment in my message where I'm thankful that I'm not the children's minister at Meadowbrook. <laughs> I started to send a text to Christy to tell her that the big O word is in there, and uh, you're going to have to do something with that. It's always interesting to explain all of this to a six-year-old. So we'll introduce it and then you'll wrap it up this afternoon when you get in <laughs> your house. So we know where we've been, we know where we're going and the victor that Christ and how that changes everything and we're told to fortify our mind, have the munition of that truth so that we might stand and walk differently in this life. And now he's telling us how we are to live differently. Here are the things that you used to have as a desire. By the way, when he uses the term Gentile, like many other of the, the writers of the epistles, they're using that term not as non-Jewish people. They're using that term in the way to describe people who are unsaved, people who don't have a relationship with God, the Gentiles, the unregenerate. And so he's saying you cannot live like the Gentiles, the unregenerate people. Why? Because you, you think differently, because you know the victory, and you know the cost of victory. And now he begins to break that down. I want you to envision Peter with a stick in his right hand and a mallet in his left and a stake stuck under his arm and a Sharpie marker in his back pocket. And I want you to see that redhead looking at you intently in the eye and handing you the stick and he's saying to you, fortify your thinking and with this stick, draw a line in the dirt. And with this stake, drive down with that mallet, drive that stake right there at that line because that's who you used to be and what you used to do. And I want you to post on that 
stake a sign that says no trespassing, do not enter. And I want you to take that marker and I want you to go back to your calendar and I want you to black in yesterday and draw a line of every day that was preceding that because what you need to do is not think and live that way any longer. Let it be different because Christ has set you free from being ruled by your sensual passions. So if Christ has set us free from sensual passions, stop resuscitating what God has put to death in you and instead allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the will of God fervently. Listen, what he's saying here, brothers and sisters, is were you not drunk enough when you were once dead in your sins? In the hardness of your unregenerate heart, and when your conscience was seared in your godlessness, did you not have enough of your habits of pornography and sexual addictions and perversions? So he's saying to them, put away your obsessions. And I would say to Metarot, put away your obsessions with wine and whiskey and beer and bourbon. Stop with all of this sexual fantasy of the fallen Put away your adulterous affairs, your sexual promiscuity, and your perusing of debased images and videos. For the time in the past suffices for that kind of sin in your life. In other words, draw the line in the sand, put the stake down, and trust Christ that what you engaged in prior to coming to new life in him, that was enough of that. No more. No more. Let the munition be that Christ has given you victory. And his spirit will help you champion that the rest of your days. So knowing we are dead to sin and alive to Christ makes the present and future very distinct from the past. Knowing that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ makes a distinction Today and the future is very different from the past. Now I've got to push the accelerator down a little bit quicker. Look at verse 4 and 5. With respect to this, we are surprised when they don't join you. And you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And when you don't, listen to what he says, they're going to malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I want you to hear this, someone alive in Christ and pursuing God's will, don't be pressured to live the life of somebody who is spiritually dead. You've been made spiritually alive. Don't be pressured to go back to the dead living. Be warned though that standing with Christ is gonna cause some people to walk away from you. And you need to recognize that if you do not continue in the same sins, you're probably not going to be welcome in the same circles. And Peter is just elevating that truth to you. Now, I know that's a tough reality, but let me assure us that what you and I will gain in Christ far exceeds what we will lose in any temporary relationship we have on this earth. Your gain will be greater. 
Some of those who pull away from you, Peter says, they're going to malign you. That means they're going to talk about you. They're going to curse you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to lie about you. And that kind of reaction hurts. And I can, I can vouch. It kind of gets in your head a little bit. And if you and I don't arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking of Jesus who suffered in order to bring victory, then we might cave under that kind of pressure. But because the Holy Spirit is maturing us and to think, think the way of Christ, then we can come to recognize that any judgment that gets cast on us in this world is just a mere judgment of the flesh. And there is a greater eternal judgment of God that is coming that will trump every judgment of this world. Just rest assured in that. In Christ, you have chosen to live your life in a manner that pleases his Holy Spirit. And you recognize that one day the all-knowing, all-truthful and just God of the universe is going to bring every person to bear in judgment before him. The living and the dead. So may we live our lives knowing that everyone will stand before God. On that day, everybody's going to stand before him. Live your life with that determination. Now, we're turning in the driveway, and I'm hitting the button for the garage door to come up. I'm about to park this thing. Verse 6. Here's the reality of God's judgment. It's the reason why he penned, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now this verse is full of hope and encouragement, and I hope you get it. Certainly my intention. Some people reading Peter's letter were concerned because their friends and their family who had received the gospel, surrendered their life to it, championing truth that Jesus is Lord, they had died in the flesh. And they were concerned about them and wondered about them. And here the apostle Peter is assuring them that though their flesh has died, as all flesh will die, that's just part of the curse of sin, that we will all experience death, except that Christ might rapture his church ahead of time, and to which that I say, come, Lord Jesus, come, ever so quickly come. But Peter is assuring us, those who are in Christ, whose bodies are now dead, he is assuring us that they are very much alive in the Spirit, as God's Spirit is alive. Now, you think about the reality of that. It's alive as God is. So those who have been in faith in Jesus Christ are just as alive. What a great truth. And I want you to know that that truth, that eternal truth of being alive in Christ is available to everybody in this room. Everybody who's listening to my voice. If you're listening to me and you're slowing down enough to think about what I'm saying, and if you're hearing it and you're believing it, then God is already at work in your heart. He's already at work in your mind. And I believe he is already moving toward you to bring you to the point of salvation in Christ Jesus. And he's already offering to you the victory that is available for all who will put their faith in Christ. And so I pray for you. I pray that this will be the day that you'll humble yourself and reject the sinful ways that you've been living and come to Christ who can make you born from heaven above, give you a new spirit as he washes your sin away. He'll credit you with his righteousness 
And he will put his Holy Spirit within you that you might be able to live empowered in the will and the way of God. But you'll have to step forward in faith. Trust him. Acknowledge him and trust him. I pray that you'll do that today. Now listen, Meadowbrook family, if I could give you three quick points to rethink what I've just shared with you, it, was, it would be these. Arm yourselves to think like Jesus about suffering. Arm yourself. Think differently about life and death. Secondly, live the will of God. Not the passions of your former self, not who you used to be, but live for the will of God. And number three, expect some people are going to judge you. They're going to talk about you. But you need to understand the judgment of God is far more significant than any words anybody's going to say about you. And God rewards handsomely for those who are faithful to him. Now may God bless us with faith to believe and trust and walk in this truth. So help us, God, I pray, for any decision and every decision that needs to be made among the people who are hearing this message, to God be the glory that you'll give them faith and grace to make those decisions in Jesus' name. Amen.